0: It's important for us to lead with the impact areas that we care about. So whether we're talking about Jewish education or elderly or healthcare, or youth engagement, there are probably ways to solve parts or all of these problems by using impact investing. And in what problems in this space can we help solve with this additional tool?
1: From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Boccoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community and, along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Jeff and members Vanessa Bartram and Michael Lustig about a topic near and dear to my heart, Jewish impact investing. Vanessa facilitates JFN's monthly roundtables on impact investing, and Michael authored JFN's newest green book, A Guide to Jewish Impact Investing. Vanessa is managing partner at Zora, a Tel Aviv-based impact fund backing exceptional Israeli teams to become the next global leaders in impact tech while seeking best-in-class returns for its investors. Vanessa began her career in investment banking in Mexico City with KPMG, corporate finance, and she later founded the Miami human resources company WorkSquare, which she grew to a 25 plus million in revenue. She is also the founding board member of LAVAN, a network of impact investors inspired by Jewish learning. She earned an MBA from Harvard, a BA from Princeton, and is a Heritage Fellow from the Wexner Foundation. Most importantly for us, she is a freshman board member at the Jewish Founders Network. Michael retired after 25 years on Wall Street and now devotes the majority of his time and energies towards nonprofit and impact-related enterprises. Prior to retiring, Michael spent most of his career at the asset management firm, BlackRock. He is the president of the Baron de Hirsch Fund, and is a board member and trustee of numerous Jewish organizations, including UJA Federation of New York, Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, the Hillel International Office of Innovation, American Friends of Ogen, and the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies in Israel. A graduate of Columbia, he is an adjunct professor of finance at New York University Stern School of Business and a lecturer at the College for Management Academic Studies in Rishon Lepsion. He also serves on the board of Gigawatt Global, the Israel-based solar energy company that built the first large-scale grid-connected fields in East Africa, as well as maintaining several other corporate advisory and board positions. In this episode, we talk about the growing field of impact investments. Those are investments that seek both a financial profit and social impact, and that is now transforming the practice of philanthropy around the world. We also discuss how we can encourage more Jewish funders to use and embrace this critical tool. Take a listen. Hi, Vanessa and Michael. It's really a pleasure to have you here.
0: Andres, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having us.
1: Very happy to be here. Great. And we're recording this as we try to get out of the heavy cloud of the pandemic. Michael just came back from Israel uh, and we all hope to be there soon. Uh, We'll see whether these words are prophetic or (laughs) we jinx it, but uh, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're here to talk with you all about the issue of impact investing, a topic that is occupying us a lot at the Jewish Funders Network, something that we started discussing many years ago when we didn't understand a little bit uh, what impact investing was. And the field sort of evolved a lot so maybe you guys can tell me a brief panorama of of how the field of impact investing is actually evolving, how does it look today, and what are the new things that are happening. Vanessa, you're going to go first.
0: Sure. One thing I think that is important to point out is that impact investing is actually something that's been around for decades and we can even say millennia. Michael, one of the things I loved in in your guide that I'm sure we'll talk more about um, was that you brought up Maimonides and the levels of giving. And the highest levels of giving that Maimonides talks about is sort of empowering and enabling other people to not need Siddhartha charity in the first place. Um, And for me, I think that's so much about what impact investing really is. So, you know, this is a concept, I think, that has had many manifestations over time. I think for me, what's unique in the past several years is just a the proliferation of products. And available ways to get involved in impact investing. And with that sort of the mainstreaming in the field that we have major banks and institutions all now taking this seriously. And the second point and related to that, that first point of mainstreaming is that impact investing used to be something that people would look at you and say, oh, that sounds really nice and I'm going to lose all my money. It's only in the past few years that we've started to have data that we can actually prove, you know, in a very empirical, numerical way, um, that impact investing can generate equal, if not superior, returns to traditional investments. So for me, I think that's really the tipping point that allows it to go mainstream and for people to make this decision with their financial investing pocket and not with their philanthropic pocket.
1: Michael, let's let's go one step back. You know, let's assume that. People are listening to this podcast, and some of them have never heard of impact investing. And you're in, in an elevator with them, and you have to explain them in 30 seconds, what is impact investing?
2: So I'm going to take a longer elevator trip. I, I may <laughs> be going up to the top of the Empire State Building, so I'll get a little bit more time in the elevator. But basically, you're looking at a company, you know, something that is a for-profit enterprise, that has, as part of its core mission, doing something good, some sort of social or environmental good, so that the company is doing what it's doing. It's making money. But along the way, as really part of its basic operations, it's getting something done that fits that kind of social or environmental good type box, if you will. So it could be a company that's doing uh, solar energy. So it's, it's a green company. It could be a company that hires former prisoners who are otherwise not easily hireable by normal industry because of background checks and whatnot with the so-called open hiring model. Things that have any sort of social or environmental good kind of fit the bill of being uh, an impact investment. And the key and what really differentiates it from, let's say, other for-profit enterprises is that it's doing that social or environmental good and will continue to do so as long as the business is in operation. So I kind of view the the key point is that you're creating something that has kind of the same sort of goals, if you will, as philanthropy or just trying to do good, but has a built-in sustainability because it's paired with a for-profit business model.
1: And it's actually interesting because one of the impetus for impact investing was the realization that A, let's say you have a foundation, you have a payout of 5% every year. So with these 5%, you're making grants. And let's say you're making grants for the uh, environment or climate change, but then the other 95% could be invested in fossil fuels. So you're actually doing something and you're contradicting it. And the other side of that coin is that In fact, you could be doing good, not just with your 5% payout, but with 100% of your corpus.
2: And and that's actually, that's an extremely good point because we're seeing a lot of the larger foundations come to that exact realization and change their investing model. You know, we've seen the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, they're all pivoting in exactly this way and realizing that they can make their assets work for their mission as well as, as you said, you know, obviously what they're spending directly on grants that are related to their mission. So there's absolutely no no reason for there to be a contradiction between what they're doing on their investing side and what they're doing on the grant making side.
1: So uh, Vanessa, I was hanging on something you said before. You said that people don't have to sacrifice profit anymore, but isn't that depending on how you count profit? Meaning I could say I'm getting less financial return, but I'm factoring in the impact I'm having. So I don't really care if I'm getting a lesser financial return. Is that a rationale that is used?
0: Absolutely. Um, and I still think a lot of investors you know, can look at the space that way, particularly foundations, if they're coming in and have an overarching mission of the foundation and feel that they can um, achieve that mission with their endowment, with their corpus. They may be willing to sacrifice, you know, some return for that. But it's an interesting trend. I think there's a industry sort of think tank um, called the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network. And each year they do a survey of the top 200, 300 largest impact investors in the world. And as a few years ago, I believe it was around... 60% of impact investors that said, I'm looking for market rate of returns. I wanna do good in the world, but I don't I don't wanna lose money doing it. I wanna make just as much money. So you still had 40%, you know, that said I'm willing to give up some financial returns. The last um, report that I saw from the gin was that 91% of the world's largest impact investors are looking for market rates of return. Wow. So they're looking to make just as much money, whether they're investing in real estate or public equities or venture capital, you know, as they would investing in a, in a traditional fund.
1: Without getting too technical, one thing that happens in impact investing is that philanthropy can actually absorb the risk of an investment, right? Like if you factor the risk out, it would be a very profitable one, but the risk is very high. and Nobody's willing at the onset to face that risk. Isn't that one of the goals also of impact investing?
0: Absolutely. You know, I think, Michael, you probably have some more good examples of this in the Jewish world, but a lot of impact investors I know are looking for what they call additionality, meaning that that investment wouldn't have happened had they not shown up to make it happen. And Andres, it's, it's exactly, it's a lot of what you're saying. It's that startup risk of a new financial vehicle, a new financial model, a new, a new way of delivering services that a philanthropist might come and sort of say, I'm willing to take the first loss on this. So that investors that come after there have also been, you know, I think about um, Bridges, um, Bridges is a impact investing fund in the UK, started by Sir Ronald Cohen in 2001. Mm -hmm. And that was a great example. The government of Britain came and said, we'll give you the first 20 million pounds and take 20 million pounds of private investment. And the government would be the first lost capital on that. Um, and they were actually able to deliver about 17 percent returns, which they didn't need, obviously, anyone to subsidize it after that, after they had made the point. Michael, you have, do you have other examples in the Jewish world?
2: Well, I have an example on something I'm working on literally as we speak, which is um, Ogen, which means anchor in Hebrew, but it's the successor organization to what used to be called the Israel Free Loan Association, IFLA. We are basically starting a social bank. And one of the ways we're funding ourselves is actually with a structured securitization, the likes of which has not been done in Israel in the for-profit world, not to say anything of the nonprofit world, where we are basically tranching or, or splitting out the risk of the financing so that the first loss is gonna be a philanthropic layer. So philanthropy essentially absorbs that first loss, and then the losses kind of creep up the structure, although we frankly don't expect any losses to hit the rest of the structure. But what this whole financing does is it gives us capital to make very low interest loans to people in Israel who are on the social or economic periphery who are not really being addressed by the traditional banking system. So be it for personal loans, small business loans, loans to Amutot, nonprofits, that's what we're doing. We've done really record volume uh, in 2020 and we're expecting to kind of repeat that in 2021. And this is an innovative way of financing that frankly, no one has done yet in Israel. Uh, I don't think anyone has really done this anywhere quite the same way, but it will have that partnership with philanthropy where they are taking that first loss and that will enable the entire structure to work. It'll enable the loans to be made. So philanthropy definitely is the Kickstarter for this, if you will. But frankly, we're also getting impact investors across the whole thing, across the structure. That second loss, that third loss piece, if you will, also has people who are interested because it has an impact.
1: You're mentioning Ogen, which is an Israeli, as you said, the successor of IFLA. But I'm actually thinking that impact investing provides a very interesting avenue for people to connect with Israel when the quote-unquote traditional ways of connecting with Israel are are not working as good as they did. Like Israel has tons of startups and tons of you know, organizations that do good and they're for-profit and mixtures with non-profit. And, and this has to be a very useful tool for the Jewish community to do Israel engagement, right?
2: Absolutely. Israel, as we all know, I hate to use the cliche, but startup nation. Increasingly, I think a better term might be innovative nation in terms of being innovative on how to integrate things like impact tech and other pivoting the pure tech space, if you will, to have impact. And I, I'm going to turn it over to Vanessa because she's deeply involved in investing in this particular area, but there's so many ways that uh, the innovations that are coming out of Israel are pivoting in ways that mimic and address the impact world, be it on the food front, so, you know, food tech, biotech, clean tech, agritech, you name it. You know, it really is giving us lots of opportunities as people who are impact investors To look at Israel as uh, really Orla Goyim, light unto the nations, as a place where innovation and impact really intersect.
0: Absolutely. And I have drank the Kool-Aid. You know, for for me, Israel is a total Disney world uh, for an impact investor. Um, And it was really for that reason that I moved there made Aliyah, you know, eight, nine years ago. Um, because I wanted to be investing in that ecosystem. And of about 6,500 startups that we have in Israel, we've tagged over 2,000 of those as having significant environmental or social impact. So it's really incredible to see sectors that Israel naturally developed as a result of their history, as a result of not trading with neighbors, as a result of needing to feed yourself in a desert. But we have over 500 agricultural technology startups um, as, as the world struggles with, you know, issues of food security. You know, this question of how we feed 10 billion people in 2050. And with desertification and with, you know, loss of water, you know, Israel has huge sectors, not just in terms of number of companies, but researchers um, and other institutions, other corporate partnerships that really create an incredibly supportive ecosystem for those companies. And that's consistent across um, digital health and medical devices. Both have about 500 companies each. Um, Cleantech is about 500 companies Increasingly, we're seeing Israel become a global leader in food tech with another about 300 companies. So it's been really amazing to see that Israel's become a a global leader in a lot of these spaces. And we expect them to continue to be number one source of fantastic impact.
1: And amazing in terms of advocacy. Here we are spending millions of dollars in brandishing Israel's image. But in fact, many of these companies do it much more effectively than any messaging campaign that we can come up with, right? (laughs) But here's a question that I have when talking about Israel. I see a lot of folks that come to me and say, I have an impact investing project in Israel. And when you look at it, it's not really impact. Like it is impact because it's in Israel, but Like investing in mobili, where like half the world is investing in mobili, is that impact too? Or how do you separate when it comes specifically to Israel? What's impact and what isn't?
2: Well, you're touching on, I'd say, one of the problems with the impact space, which is there's a lot of subjectivity. And there are different uh, mechanisms to measure impact. And there are private companies that uh, will measure impact, you know, do an evaluation, if you will, of businesses and, and come up with impact measurements. There are standards that are being developed and have been developed in the market, analogous to what we see on the financial side of measurement uh, with FASB, Financial Accounting Standards Boards. There is SASB, the Sustainable Asset Standards Boards, and different ways to kind of measure impact. But it boils down to a degree of subjectivity. So Mobileye certainly, now it's just part of Intel, but is or was a, a large company on its own, a very successful company. They were doing something that has an impact. That wasn't their primary goal. Their primary goal, obviously, was to make money. But also, they are saving lives in that they are creating systems that prevent uh, accidents on the road. I'm assuming as they're getting into autonomous driving, which I know they're a big push and they're probably going to be one of the the first out the door with a real autonomous driving system, that is something that will save gas. It will be more energy efficient, if you will. A robot driver is more efficient than I am. So there's definitely positives from both a social and an environmental standpoint, but, you know, it's not primarily an impact company. It's a company that has some impact aspects to what they do. You know, it's not one of their main missions or one of their main focuses is to have impact per se.
1: So if you invested there, you'd still be helping Israel, but there's like different layers, right? Like basic layer is, okay, every company in Israel generates employment and generates wealth for the country, and we love the country, so that's okay. But then there's a second layer, which is you're not mobili, you are a kibbutz yod veta in the Negev, right? And you don't have the same access to global capital markets. You may have a project that is very long-term, and this is where impact funds can come and close that gap, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there are funds that are focused specifically on I'd say that end of the market that you identified, which are, let's say, small to mid-sized companies that don't have access to the capital markets necessarily are somewhat ignored, if you will, by larger investors and therefore represent good value for a fund that's looking to, to address that end of the market. And there are a few of those as well. At the same time, those funds are providing liquidity and growth capital for the companies, for let's say, for right. example, kibbutz yotvata, so, more cheese and milk out there.
1: So, uh, Vanessa, I, I have a question for you. It's fairly clear for me. What impact could be in Israel? Because Israel, after all, is a country, right? And and it deals with the same issues that any other countries deal and, and has the infrastructure to have companies that deal with these issues of sustainability and, and the environment and you name it. Now, how would something like impact investing play out in the Jewish community in North America or in any other place in the world? Like, what is it going to look like investing in a firm to provide kosher meat at affordable prices?
0: <laughs> it's not a bad idea, Andres. And actually, I know an impact investor who's done that yeah. um, specifically. Um, I think at a very basic level, Jewish organizations and institutions, whether federations or foundations, can make progress in managing their investments more holistically. You know, this is what you brought up before about foundations yeah. managing the endowment with the same values that they have there. I think particularly for a younger generation as Jewish organizations, when we're struggling with affiliation um, and how to engage younger people, I think that's a really critical element to have that transparency and that authenticity um, in our organizations. Yeah,
1: But that I'm totally clear. The question is, somebody comes to you and says, you know what? You sold me on it. I want to do impact and I want to do impact in Israel. But I also want to use impact tools to address issues in the Jewish community.
0: Exactly. 100 percent. I think there are myriad ways. um, And I think we have so much room to be more creative about it. Um, You know, a few examples that I've thrown around with friends. One friend was looking at what if we put together a loan pool? that would allow day schools and synagogues to retrofit their buildings to become more energy efficient. Um, And on average, these buildings could save somewhere between 40,000 and $50,000 a year by doing this. Every bit that we can make more efficient within Jewish communal organizations um, in terms of how they're spending their capital is less philanthropic money that needs to be raised or on the other hand, more philanthropic money that can address issues that only philanthropy can address. I think there are lots of services for elderly, Um, you know, particularly we're in this moment of silver tech and aging in place. How can we in the Jewish community develop startups or companies that will better address, you know, issues of, of loneliness or um, health access for seniors in our community. It could be, you know, survivors of Shoah, it could be any particular community. Um, another area, you know, I've looked at with people is early education and childcare in geographies, areas where there's not great access to early quality, early child education. What about having an amazing chain of Jewish early education? Yeah centers. Um, So I really think I won't say every problem. I still think philanthropy, you know, has a significant role to play. Um, But I I really think with some creativity, there are really no shortage of ways that we could be thoughtful about starting businesses and developing financial vehicles that would address a lot of the issues in the Jewish community and do it more efficiently than we're doing with philanthropy right now.
1: Yeah. Interestingly enough, like many communities that were in serious distress, Like, you know, my native uh, Buenos Aires, when the crisis hit, there, there were some interesting ideas. So, for example, there was a Jewish taxi company, like everybody was losing their jobs. So people would take their severance payment, buy a taxi, but it was a lot of competition. Everybody was doing the same. So the community said, let's do a a Jewish thing. So people are going to be more trustworthy. And so there are things that were done, but were done a little episodically. And what you're saying is let's take a much more systemic approach to it and let's have that chip in our head. To add that dimension, maybe the problem we're trying to solve can be solved with impact tools in a way. But I I want to go back to something you said, Michael, maybe you you had thoughts on that. Just to be absolutely clear, this is not replacing traditional philanthropy. You still need to give money. You still need to give money. What this does is it gives you more tools to do more good.
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, Vanessa said it very well. This is not replacing philanthropy. This is augmenting philanthropy. Right. And uh, we see the beginnings of it. I'd say in the Jewish world, some of the federations around the country are starting to embrace impact in different ways, still on the smaller side. (laughs) Some of them kind of have flirted with it a little bit and then shied back a little bit. And I think this is going to be an evolutionary process. It's going to take time. One of the important points that Vanessa uh, made earlier is that there's a very, very strong affinity between the concept of impact investing and the next gen, you know, the millennial, right. if you will, generation and, and younger. Right. But, but they, yeah. this is something that resonates with them. So by definition, I think this evolution of philanthropy getting a little bit more impacty in terms of how they do things and how they look at things a little bit more sustainably, uh, that's going to be the trend, whether
1: people like it or not. And it's interesting, we we surveyed our members, the JFN members, and members below 40 years old, uh, they're 20 times more likely to use these tools than their elders. So it's definitely an engagement tool that we should embrace wholeheartedly. Let me get into a little bit of Azkabro's terrain. The whole notion of impact can be also used against us. I mean, there's some companies or some BDS activists that are trying to use impact to divest from Israel, saying, you know, sort of be coherent with the values and whatever. This is, in a way, using a judo technique. You kind of use the same technique, but you say you can use impact to foster, for example, peace and coexistence by engaging, not by disengaging, by working with rather than boycotting, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, I would view that use of impact, if you will, as a misuse, as we see, and, and I, I don't want to get into a whole BDS discussion, but usually that involves applying double standards in a, in a way that just isn't correct or fair. So yes, the tools
1: of impact can be misused, just like, frankly, any investment any tool. tool. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Vanessa, you you know a lot of products there in impact. So somebody comes in and says, "Listen, I believe in peace and justice for both Israelis and Palestinians, and I don't want to fall into the laps of the boycott crowd. I want to engage constructively." So there are impact tools that you can use. I mean, the first that comes to mind is an organization called Meet that does joint ventures between Israelis and Palestinians, but any illustration of how it is possible to really engage with that from a constructive point of view?
0: Sure. I mean, I, I think of a friend, Eudine Kaufman, that had started a, a venture capital fund in Ramallah specifically to be able to support Palestinian ventures there and to be able to create connections between Palestinians and Israelis in high tech. So I think increasingly, um, you know, there are efforts to sort of bridge that gap in terms of coexistence and working together. But I don't know. You know, it's it's a different kind of impact. The companies themselves are not necessarily impact companies. Another friend had started a solar company. Um, an Israeli guy with a partner in Palestine started a solar company to try to improve the access to electricity in the West Bank, where power outages are are frequent and prohibit businesses from running efficiently, hospitals, et cetera. So I think increasingly we're seeing examples of people with an impact focus and orientation sort of develop those relationships and and bridge that gap.
1: So the, the message there is it's much more positive to engage constructively and positively, than to engage from the negative, from disengaging through boycotts and the like. If what you want is peace and coexistence, their impact provides a very, very good tool for that.
2: No, and, and and I would even say at the same time can present some very good and interesting investment opportunities. Right, so I'm personally invested in a seed venture fund called Takwin, yeah. which does what uh, Yadin's fund is doing uh, on. The other side of the green line, this is doing it within Israel proper, but we're funding Arab entrepreneurs. We're basically working with Arab graduates of Technion uh, and funding their projects in in a seed incubator type uh, structure. And uh, I would say that fund, we're currently, they're they're in the middle of marketing the second fund, but the first fund that I'm invested in is probably one of my best seed (laughs) venture investments anywhere. And I think globally of any of my investments is one of my best ones. And it's
1: frankly, one of the ancillary benefits is fostering coexistence. Right. And, um, you know, we talk about Palestinians and Arabs. And let's let's talk about another tricky population in Israel from the point of view of integration in the labor force and in the uh, economic process, which is the Haredi population, the so-called ultra population. Anything interesting that you're seeing in that field?
2: You know, once again, you're dealing with a population, we'll step back. It's a population that doesn't have necessarily the right tools going into the workforce to be as competitive, meaning they haven't, you know, for the most part, I'm generalizing, have not had full curriculum in high school, have not necessarily had the same university education. So for something that's somewhat tech related or something tech focused, they're starting with a leg down. Uh, there are various initiatives. Uh, Moshe Friedman has a thing called Kama Tech, which is essentially plucking out the, uh, the tech startups from among the Haredi world. Uh, and that's something that, frankly, was initially funded by philanthropy, by the New York Federation, among others, and is now its own force. There are other instances where uh, some impact-type funds are funding Haredi-led businesses uh, but it's still, unfortunately, the exception rather than the rule in that population. Just because they're not necessarily in the right space, educationally or attitudinally, to go into it whole hog.
0: I know one other example. Um, Startup Nation Central, last this past year, was working with a foundation, a U.S.-based foundation, to do training for about 2,000 ultra-orthodox women to help them access jobs. And Israel faces a huge talent gap in in programming, about 45,000 people. Um, So it was interesting to see they were, you know, able to sort of connect the dots between a few different issues and looking to train women in the Haredi community to be able to take some of these entry-level programming jobs.
1: Israel has it's internal problems that can solve through impact. we are talking about Arabs and Haredim, et cetera, but it, there are a lot of Israeli companies solving global problems like through water technologies. And you know, a couple of our members are doing water generating systems for Syrian refugees, for example. What is your favorite story of impact investings in Israel that have had an impact in vulnerable populations in other places in the world?
2: Well, I can give you uh, my favorite one is one that I'm actually personally invested in as well, which is a company called Gigawatt Global, which is Israeli based. But uh, what we do is we build large scale solar fields in Africa. And, uh, you know, we're looking at other geographies and we actually have fields in North America as well. But our focus is Africa. We've just finished a field in Burundi. That, you know, most people, when I tell people that, they give me a funny look because they don't know where it is, or whether they've never heard of it before. But guess what? It has more people than Israel. 10 million people smack dab in the middle of Africa, where it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And we put in a solar field that's going to be, or is, because it's interconnected, roughly 8% of the entire electrical grid in the country, which says more about, you know, the poverty of the country than it does about the size of our field. But uh, we are helping to not only bring power to a part of the world that doesn't have it and help bring people essentially out of the third world into the first, but we also treat the field and treat the locality with a lot of care from a communal standpoint. We make sure that some of the revenue from the field is going into the local community. So we are using some of the power for water purification in that community. We've trained locals so that we can hire them to help maintain the solar field, clean the panels, et cetera. So they have a vested interest in our success as well. And we're trying to give back at the same time as we are at the same time trying to turn a profit in a field that's generating electricity.
1: So there is a great illustration of impact on several levels, right? Like you have one basic impact, which is this is an Israeli company employing people in Israel, paying taxes in israel and therefore that's one level of impact second level of impact they're solving an environmental problem you know replacing you know fossil fuels with uh, renewables third they're helping people in africa that need help and fourth They're actually a great tool for Israel advocacy in the world. So this is, I think, the sweet spots of impact. When one investment, you actually hit many levers of of transformation there, right?
2: Yeah. So so that actually, Andres, as you said, that's the quadruple bottom line, if you will. (laughs) Uh, And normally in the impact world, we're looking for a double bottom line, meaning the social and the financial return. Here we're getting, you know, a grand slam. Right, and I forgot to say,
1: you're also making money out of it. Right, so, so- it's win, 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 win. And, <laughs> uh, that's the best way to do it. Vanessa, your favorite one?
0: It's very hard to pick a favorite, Andres. It's not a fair question. Um, but some of the companies I'm thinking of, um, you know, there's OKO in Tel Aviv that does crop insurance, Um for subsistence farmers in Africa. Um, so you think about people living on a dollar or two dollars a day. Um, if for some reason their crop due to pests or drought is taken for the year, that's catastrophic for them. So using mobile phones and an app on mobile phones, working with local banks and, um, the telecom um, payments via mobile in Africa, they're able to offer these farmers for the first time crop insurance and at the same time are providing them with education about um, the best inputs and the best place um, where they can get the best price for their crops. Um, Another company, um, John Rathhauser, started a company, Kahila, um, that's a mobile app to encourage people to adhere to their tuberculosis training, um, because non-adherence is, is one of the biggest issues. So, using sort of a behavioral economics tricks encourages people to keep up with their TB treatment. For us, you know, one of our favorites in our own portfolio um, is a company I control. These are three Israelis. Um, all of whom had been affected by ALS in their lives. Um, One, their grandfather, one, a good friend. And the third founder, unfortunately himself, was Israeli Air Force pilot, Iron Man at 35, developed ALS and died several years later, but decided they need a better way for people with ALS to be able to communicate, because these are people who can only communicate through movements of their eyeball, through their pupil. And so they developed a communication device that allows people using the direction of their pupils to be able to compute sentences, to talk to family members, to listen to music, to audibly listen to books, turn it on and off the lights. And it was actually quite interesting because as an investor, it's always a challenge. It has incredibly deep impact, and yet it's a small market size. And it's a horrible thing to look at and say, we're not going to invest and help solve this problem because there aren't enough it people suffering yeah. from it. One of the things that was interesting was that they found, particularly during COVID, that with ventilated patients in the hospital have the same challenge of not being able to communicate with caregivers, with clinical staff, with loved ones. And they're actually just now starting a trial at Emory Hospital in Atlanta to be able to bring eye control to to ventilated patients around Mm -hmm. the world.
2: I actually want to thank Vanessa, because I'm an investor in eye control through Vanessa. uh, She uh, connected me with them. And I guess when you ask the question of what's your favorite, the proper answer is I can't pick a favorite child.
1: Thinking about the growth of this field and how we can go to the next level in the Jewish community. still. It's a fascinating field, but it's still a minority of the people are actually using these. And we are the Jewish Funders Network. We're we're trying to encourage that. And, you know, Michael, you wrote an amazing um, guide, uh, sort of a guide for the perplexed to understand a little bit of impact investing. And Vanessa, the work that you've been doing in through Zora and through your own activism to show the world the goods of impact are, are really transformational. But what do you think are the major roadblocks to everybody adopting impact?
2: Well, I think it's a new paradigm, even though as Vanessa pointed out earlier on, it's something that's existed forever, basically. Uh, It's something that people are identifying now and are starting to wake up to now. I will use as kind of a a benchmark, my old boss, Larry Fink at BlackRock, uh, has kind of jumped on the bandwagon as well. And uh, He's been pushing it. His firm has issued a very large fund that's focused on impact in different ways. So I think that it's an evolutionary process where the the word is getting out there. Knowledge is getting out there slowly but surely. I hope my guide helps on that front as well. There's more and more courses being taught in in a university and college setting. And in fact, I taught one uh, last semester remotely from New York to Israel. So uh, helping to get the word out, I guess, among students in Israel as well. And I think it's really a, uh, an evolutionary process where people are getting educated, people are starting to put their, their money where their thoughts are in terms of allocating their portfolios accordingly. Uh, funds are being created, larger and larger funds are being created or, or getting more assets that are focused on various aspects of impact, be it just trying to invest in public equities that have an impact aspect to them, or uh, trying to get into private investments that have an impact focus. So it's definitely a, a trend. It's not something that's going to happen you know, overnight by snapping our fingers. But I think we're seeing the trend happen. We're seeing things move in that direction and continue in that way.
0: I would say, Andres, I think in the Jewish community, it's important for us to lead with the impact areas that we care about. So, whether we're talking about Jewish education or elderly or healthcare or youth engagement, I think we can really use existing affinity groups um, and funders who have a lot of experience and expertise in this area and offer ideas and brainstorm around impact investing and what problems in this space can we help solve. With this additional tool for all funders, you know, across impact areas that they care about to be thinking about, this is another tool in my toolbox. And there are probably ways to solve parts or all of these problems by using impact investment as well.
1: If somebody were to want to dip their toe in the water and getting to this world, what would be the first step?
2: Well, I guess this is the the age old question. Whenever someone says, oh, where should I invest my money? (laughs) And there's no one right answer. And you really need to kind of see what interests that person, what their risk tolerance is. And from that, it will fall out, you know, different options will fall out. So if someone is looking for, if they have a higher tolerance of risk, there are many private equity type approaches that have very deep impact, have some degree of risk attached to them, but have also at the same time, as you know, risk and return uh, should go together, so have the potential for higher returns. Uh, and frankly, as I as I noted before, returns that are certainly comparable to what you'd expect in any private equity type environment—not necessarily something that specifically has impact—but they're comparable and competitive with anything out there. If you're looking kind of in the more public spectrum. There are many funds, there are many mutual funds that have an impact flavor to them. So there are are lots of options. I don't wanna single out any one. There's definitely many, many options out there.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And I think diving into impact investing, there's really a spectrum of behaviors. And I look at it as starting with something as simple as conscious consumerism and which companies am I looking to support based on how they source their products and how they package them. And then, you know, typically, I think public equities, Michael, as you said, is, is really the gateway drug. It's something that with a 401k and IRA with a few hundred dollars, it's easy to get into as you move up that spectrum of deeper and deeper impact, the ticket for entry usually gets higher. The risk becomes more significant, but across you know, real estate um, and choosing to, to buy or live in or retrofit an apartment or, or home that's green, there's no, there's no shortage of ways to make impact investments.
1: This has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, I think from my own vantage point, I think that everybody should explore this field, the opportunities it offers, and the possibilities it gives funders to expand their impact in very interesting ways. uh, It's another tool they can have in their toolbox and a very exciting way of making a difference. So thank you, Vanessa and Michael, for this uh, illuminating conversation. Thank you for pleasure. having us, Andres. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. Thanks so much to Vanessa Bartram and Michael Lustig. You can learn more about Jewish Impact Investing by downloading A Guide to Jewish Impact Investing, Jeff's brand new green book. If you're a JFN member, I also encourage you to register for our next Impact Investing Roundtable session. The details on both can be found on our website. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the work of the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at JFunders. And you can also follow me on Twitter at at @spokorini. I'll leave you with a quote from writer Anita Roddick. If you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito. So when we talk about impact, always try to make an impact. Don't be deterred by size over the magnitude of the challenge. Keep giving and join us next time on What Gives.